0: Hi, and welcome to Quest, a vineyard church where relationships are the mission and we strive to live life as friends with faith through knowing God, loving others, and making a difference. Before we dive into today's sermon audio, we'd like to share an exciting opportunity with you. On March 21st, Quest is teaming up with Northeast Columbus's premier missions organization, Westerville Area Resource Ministry, or WARM, for the WARM Quest to End Poverty 5K Run and 1K Family Walk, facilitated by Premier Racing. You can register for the run, the walk, or simply just to donate by visiting gotoquest.org slash warm5k. That's g slash warm5k. Now, let's dive in to this week's message. Before we start, I'm going to share a quick story with you that uh, I shared at the end of of last service. But as Ross said, um, uh, my name is Dusty. I'm one of the pastors here serving with Worship and Creative Arts. But I also get to be in the sermon planning meetings and the creative meetings that we do here between Ross and Jeremy and Wendy and myself. And, And when we first started talking about the Jesus life, this idea for a series through Lent, we were talking about, you know, taking these characteristics and teachings of Jesus and and not just celebrating the happenings, but celebrating just how big uh, Jesus is and and how meaningful and intentional his life is. And I kept having this this like recurring story uh, pop into my head uh, about a way that I wasn't living the Jesus life correctly. I'm going to share that with you real quick. Sometimes we think that when we need to act like Jesus, we need to mimic him. You know, we need to be like the kid in the Halloween costume. We're not really a ninja, but we're kind of pretending we're a ninja and we're saying ninja things or whatever. The same thing was was happening to me several years ago before Melinda and I met. I was uh, in a, a pretty heated argument with the girl I was dating at the time. And we got to that point in the fight where it was basically like a nothing fight. You know, where you're just kind of throwing out random things that you don't like about the person, and the volume's just getting louder and louder. And at one point, she goes, And you always use metaphors and stuff. Who does that? And I said, Jesus. I'm going to go with Jesus. Jesus does that. So so as we move forward, just remember, that's not what we're talking about in the Jesus life. Not mimicking Jesus, not yelling Jesus's name as a kill shot in a conversation. Uh, so uh, I didn't want to share that with you uh, before we got going because it was going to plague my mind if I didn't. Um, but moving on. Uh, We humans are really good at asking questions. You know, we ask all kinds of questions about who we are and where we come from, and is there a higher power who brought us here? And if so, is that power God? And no matter where you look in human history, we ask these questions, and, and sometimes we generate our own answers to those questions. And religion is one of those things that we've created to provide us with those answers, you know, to provide us with a sense of belonging and safety you know, in a way to surround ourselves with people who have the same or at least similar answers to the big questions. And from that, we then get organizations and institutions that we use to kind of structure and organize our worlds, you know, and help us believe that everything's going to be okay if we just do the right things. And now since we're talking about religion, it's important to note that people use the word religion in different ways. So here's what I like to call the unsalted peanuts version of uh, what religion really means and, and how we'll use it today. But religion is any system of belief, behavior, or belonging that we put between us and God. Again, any system of belief, behavior, or belonging that we put between us and God. And we humans create and use religion as a stairway to heaven. You know, or, or a bridge of the gap between us and God. But more often than not, it becomes a wall. It becomes a distraction. And we frequently tend to focus on it, You know, the beliefs, the behaviors, the belonging. And thus we lose focus on God. Because if there is a God, nothing we create to get to Him is actually greater than Him. And that's what Jesus' message is. You know, and when we study Jesus' message, when we study His life, we find that it's a message that says religion is redundant and unnecessary. It's the message that God himself has bridged the gap through the person of Jesus. It shows us that God himself, through grace and the person of Jesus, fills us far more than any act or ritual can. God does what all humans have been trying to do throughout history, that we're trying to make our acts and rituals do something they can't, but Jesus can, and again, this is driven by grace. You know, grace is the idea that we can't do anything to add to the gift that God has given to us. And all we have to do is open our eyes to it. And when we do that, we call that faith. Even that is a gift from God. So the goal then is to live as people ready to have our hearts stirred by God. But in order to do this, we have to be warm to this idea of Jesus and about the intentionality of his life and the message that he brings. Before we go any further, I'd like to share some of the resources that I used today uh, for this message. Um, The first is uh, from another message called Wrecking the Rules, uh, a message by Bruxy Cavey. There's also uh, John for Everyone, part one. It's N.T. Wright's commentary on the gospel of John. William Barclays, the gospel of John, part one, and C.H. Spurgeon's lectures to my students. So when we study the life of Jesus, like we'll practice today, we don't always get what we expect. You know, Jesus didn't come with a new religion. He actually goes head to head with the religion of his day. And because of that, the religion of his day puts him to his death. And the part that could be challenging is Jesus shows us how to live not just through what he says, but what he does. And we're going to spend most of our time looking at John chapter 2 if you want to start turning there in your Bibles. And when we look at the Gospels, John included, we find that there are large portions dedicated just to recording Jesus's actions. You know, they're not really full of his words and and teachings, but the actions are very well documented. So if we have these questions that we want answered, and Jesus isn't just spoon feeding it to us with direct oral teaching, we must also look at the intentional way that he lived. So like I said, today we'll be focusing on John chapter 2, but John also says something in chapter 1 that really uh, sets the framework and I think we need to pay attention to. We're going to look at verses 1 and 14 of John chapter 1 specifically. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, Jesus, the Word. In other words, when God communicates, he becomes his own message. And 14, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son. Who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word became flesh. So, John is telling us that God's primary message to us is wrapped up in the person of Jesus. In other words, everything Jesus does is God's Word to us. Of course, His words are also God's Word to us, but everything Jesus does also needs to be studied and taken to heart. So, this means every action. Every character trait that Jesus has and shows is an intentional glimpse at the heart of God, a part of God's message to us. And we find at least three characteristics about Jesus' intentionality in this passage. And that's how we'll focus the rest of our time here together. So number one is... Jesus is intentional about breaking down the barriers of religion. And this is a biggie. And FYI, even though it is in three points, it's, it's very top heavy. So don't think we're going to go as long as the first point the whole way through. Number two, uh, Jesus is intentional about meeting people where they are. And three, Jesus is intentional about working through relationship. So let's go ahead and read together starting in verse one. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus's mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, so they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. So as we dig into this passage, let me share a quote from William Barclay from his commentary on John's gospel to echo what I said a moment ago. He says, the very richness of the fourth gospel, referring to John, presents those who would expound it with a problem. Always in the fourth gospel, there are two things. There is a simple surface story that anyone can understand and retell. But there is also a wealth of deeper meaning for him who has the eagerness to search and the eye to see and the mind to understand. In other words, this thing has layers. You know, Cake has layers. Onions have layers. I've been told by talking donkeys that ogres have layers. Um, and, and, and John's gospel most definitely has layers. There's no exception there. So with that in mind, let's, let's look at verse 11 again. It's interesting to note here that the Greek word being translated as first has a dual meaning. The, the Greek word is arche, and it means first overall. So it can mean first as in a sequence, but it's not limited to it. If you were just talking sequence uh, in Greek, you would use proto as being first. But arche means first, like when we th- say things like first lady, you know, it's not just a first of sequence, but also of importance. So this then is the miracle that sets the tone. It provides the framework. It's the arch miracle. It's the uber miracle. John is putting an emphasis here in the text about this particular miracle account. Again, not just water being turned into wine, but how Jesus facilitated it and all the action that's going on around it. It's a sign. It's a miracle with a message. It's a a literal and symbolic event. It also says that this was something that revealed Jesus's glory. I'm going to stray from the script for a moment. Um, one thing that is interesting to note too is that in the Jewish tradition, a wedding ceremony was seen um, as as a, kind of like a, an illustration of the end of days. Um, God was always seen as the, the groom, whereas his people were always seen as the bride. And so then uh, the wedding day, though, happens at the end of time. So up until the end of days, they kind of see themselves as being uh, a bride and groom in waiting. You know, they're engaged. But the wedding feast in and of itself is when, uh, when God comes back, when his people are reunited with him. But moving on, the Greek word for glory here is doxa, uh, which comes from the Hebrew word kavod, which literally means heavy. but came to mean importance and honor and so on. It's, it's the woe factor, the, the wow factor. You know, much like the old slang term, heavy, like, whoa, that's heavy. Uh, that you might remember from this clip from my favorite movie doc she didn't even look at him this is more serious than i thought apparently your mother is amorously infatuated with you instead of your father whoa wait wait a minute doc are you trying to tell me that my mother has got the odds for me precisely whoa this is heavy there's that word again heavy why are things so heavy in the future is there a problem with the earth's gravitational pull I love that movie. (laughs) I love that movie. And that's actually why I play the guitar, by the way, is seeing uh, Michael J. Fox do that Johnny B. Good solo. That is why I play the guitar. Um, So keep that in mind, though, that use of the word heavy as we dive into our first point. This symbol, uh, this miracle is heavy. It's important. It sets the tone and framework for Jesus's ministry. So number one, Jesus is intentional about breaking down the barriers of religion. And again, this one's the longer point, but it frames the rest. During the time and location of this account, Judaism was the religious majority. It was the religion of the day. And remember, Jesus is literally just starting out. In the book of John, there's no birth account. So you basically jump from John the author introducing Jesus in that beautiful passage that we just read. You know, in the beginning was the Word and highlighting that Jesus is the Word of God in flesh. And then you have some interaction with John the Baptist. You have Jesus calling his first disciples. And then, boom, it's this wedding party. So word really hasn't spread yet. You know, Jesus isn't uh, trending on first century Twitter, nothing like that. The, The Jews in this time are still living under old covenant and they are neck deep in rituals and religion and things that were supposed to help bring them closer to God. But their overall focus had really shifted from the heart of God to the rules. You know, their bridge to God became better known than the heart of God itself. Now, that isn't to bash Judaism in that era. You know, God meets people where they are. God blessed those acts and rules and and rituals because he knew that at that time, that's what his people needed to interact with him. Not necessarily what he needed, uh, but what they needed. And now Jesus is on the scene and and they don't need that anymore. You know, Jesus starts here in John chapter 2 to usher in a new covenant. And this, in my opinion, is what starts Jesus on the road to the cross and Jesus makes a big statement by breaking some religious rules in his first miracle. And I think it gets overlooked quite often. So look at verse 6. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. So an important note, look at the rest of the story. Verses 1 through 11. There's no other verse in this account as detailed as this one. They don't say how the weather was at the party. Uh, or how the food was cooked, or how good the music was. They don't even mention any names of the wedding party, or the banquet master, or even the disciples, just Jesus. And even Mary is only referred to as Jesus's mother. So clearly the details of these jars must be important. So here are some things that you might want to know about the jars. Number one, they're stone. That's important. In Leviticus, it says that clay jars that were cheaper and easier to come by could have religious impurities. However, stone jars could not. So although they were more expensive, stone jars were used for religious washing. And the second thing is that there were six of them. And in the Old Covenant, God taught the Jewish people to live in a cycle of sevens. You know, seven was seen as this number of completeness and fullness. And six, on the other hand, was seen as the number of incompleteness, like trying, the the close but no cigar type number. And here's why those types of jars existed. Jewish people during that time believed in something called ritual impurity. The premise is basically that if somebody did something wrong or experienced something that was the result of sin amongst a host of other things, they became ritually impure for a time. They saw it too as being contagious in a way. So if someone was ritually impure and they touched you, then you were impure for a time. And if they sat on something or drank from something or whatever, then that thing became impure. And if you touched that thing that they touched, then you were impure for a time. And then the only way to cure you of the impurity was you had to find the little girl next to the jungle gym and have her give you a circle, circle, dot, dot. Now you got your cootie shot. shot. okay. That part's not true, but the rest of it is, okay? Uh, The rest of it is. But honestly, what they thought, in order to be cleansed of this impurity, you had to be washed in the Jewish equivalent of holy water. And if you were Jewish in that time and you were rich enough, you would actually have special baths built into your home. And again, these weren't for uh, hygiene-type bathing, uh, just for religious purposes. So some practicing Jews uh, still have them and use them, and they're called mikvahs. And we have some pictures of some ancient ones and some, some modern ones on the screens. But if you couldn't afford a mikveh, you had the water in these stone jars, just like Jesus is using for the wine. And uh, some households that had mikvahs still actually had the stone jars kind of like as a quick clean method. You know, if you were out during the day and you were worried, you shook uh, the hand of someone who was impure or something like that. Instead of taking the time to use the mikvah, you just wash your hands of the affected area and, and the water jar. These jars then, all of them holding 20 to 30 gallons apiece, Jesus fills with wine. And there would have been empties there, you know, like empty bottles, kegs, or wine skins, or something. But he goes out of his way and decides to use the religious jars to fill with wine. And from what the text says, the wine was good wine. And that's no offense to two-buck Chuck or anything like that, uh, but, but it's not two-buck Chuck. You know, we're hitting just under 200 gallons here. It's like 900 bottles of good wine. It's like the entire New Albany Kroger wine section filled with, with top-dollar wine. But do you see how controversial that could be for those first-century Jews? You know, it, it, it's hard for us to grasp how upsetting this could be to that culture. Uh, let me try to give you an example um, later today we'll be celebrating communion, and imagine for a second I say, "Hey, forget communion! I've turned the baptismal into a margarita cooler. Uh, so have Ross or one of the elders. Uh, salt the rim of your glass. And come on up and let's dip into these bad boys." And some of you are like, "Amen, amen." <laughs> but but even if even if we did enjoy it or want to do it, it would be weird. At least you know for a hot second, it'd be uncomfortable. And the fact is, it was even more of an issue in that culture. You know, could, could you imagine? These jars are something you use to stay pure before God, and they're being used to hold wine. And you have to understand this. If you are a, a regular questite, you're here pretty often. Um, that's not the official term. I just like saying questite. Uh, you know we don't really have formal altars or relics or anything like uh, the Jews of that time did. But from the outside looking in, some people may still think us to be, you know, religious. And I think I speak for the majority of us when I say that we do the things we do here because we want to, not because we have to. You know, we we come and do things at certain times and in certain ways that may look religious, but we do it to celebrate and nurture this relationship that we have with God and with others. You know, it's not because we're afraid that we'll fall out of relationship or become not Christian anymore if we don't do certain things. You know, we desire to be here. We celebrate being here and serving through here. And Jesus comes to show us, though, that we don't need the rituals anymore to get to him. We just need grace. But, but things like these ceremonial washings, now that's, that's all these people had ever known. Let's look at Hebrews 10.14 for a second. For by one sacrifice he is made perfect forever, those who are being made holy. We are now and not yet. You know, we we grow, we learn, we we, we seek understanding, but we're starting from a place of already being good enough and and loved enough and accepted because of Jesus. And everything we do here at this church is to celebrate this grace and love and to seek better understanding of it. But no sermon or song or Christmas party, prayer service or fundraiser is actually going to save or love you. You know, they can help you celebrate love and, and share it and invite other people into it, but the event and practice itself cannot love or save you. And this is what Jesus is telling us now. And it's what he was showing then to those people with those jars as the example. So I ask you as we move on, what is your religious jar? You know, what is that thing that started as a way to get to Jesus or connect with God that has now become a distraction? And what things in our lives, church related or not, are blocking us from the direct connection that we have in a relationship with Jesus? And as you think about that, we're going to move to part two. Jesus is intentional about meeting people where they are. Okay, so what do I, what do I mean when I say meeting people where they are? We, we really are talking about grace here. And in other words, you know, when, when we first come to Jesus, he doesn't say, okay, but first you have to you know, fill in the blank. He just engages with you right there where you are. Now, that doesn't mean a relationship with Jesus isn't ever challenging But it does mean that there are no prerequisites in accepting his love. As many of you know, uh, Melinda and I are expecting our first baby in July, uh, a little girl named Cadence, and I am already in love with her. And she's done nothing. You know, she's done absolutely nothing. You know, I, I already miss her, and I've never seen her besides ultrasound pictures. But I anxiously wait for the day that I get to hold her and be with her and hear her. And she had to do nothing but exist to win my heart. You know, now as she grows up, I'm sure it won't be all sunshine and pony kisses, right? But but the fact is, just like that verse we read in Hebrews, she's already perfect to me. You know, there are things that Mel and I will teach her and challenge her with to help her grow into an amazing young woman. But those are things we'll do because we love her already right now. You know, not because she did something for us first. And if that's how I feel about my daughter... Now imagine what Jesus feels for a whole world of people, past, present, and future, that he loves so deeply and dearly. Now, there are a couple examples of Jesus meeting people where they are in this passage, but I want to focus in on one real quick, and that is with his mother, Mary. So look at verse 3. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. And now Jesus' response to verse 4 is key. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, "My, my time has not yet come. So, quick poll here. How many of you have ever called your mom woman to her face? Anyone? Anyone? How about your wives or girlfriends? Any? Yeah. Now, from what I understand, it's not as offensive in this context as it would be for us now. Uh, But there are definitely more words for mom. And uh, he's definitely intentional here about what he's saying. You know, all Mary says is they have no more wine. You know, she didn't even really ask a question. And she didn't open with, oh, precious Jesus powerful you, anything like that, or any sort of formal flattery. She came to him more with a statement than a request, but knew that he had the ability to take care of the situation. And just like we talked about earlier, Jesus didn't waste the opportunity here. He is, in fact, intentional. So first look at his second phrase, my time has not yet come. So what does he mean by that? Well, remember, this is Jesus's first miracle. He's just called his first disciples. You know, Jesus knows that if he does something that shows even a glimpse of his power and holiness, that it would start him on the path to his death. And once he starts, there's no turning back. Now, Jesus also knows that this then changes his relationship with his mother. It's like he's saying, Mom, if I do this, you know, I'm no longer just your son and and you my mother. You are a woman and I am your Lord, you are my disciple. And he takes advantage of this opportunity when she comes to him, not just to meet her request, but to move forward in his ministry and to start the paradigm shift in their personal relationship. And this conversation between Mary and Jesus prompts Mary to give an instruction. She says to the servants at the wedding, do whatever he tells you. And something I thought was interesting is I read somewhere that this is actually the only instruction that Mary gives in the entire New Testament. Do whatever he tells you. And that brings us to number three. Jesus is intentional about working through relationship. Look at verses seven and eight. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And I think we could all agree that Jesus provided the miracle power, but how did he carry it out? Through other people, some unnamed servants you know, and he uses simple and beautiful instructions. He could have very well had done this by himself. But that's not how God works. You know, God always does things in relationship. Look into the Old Testament. God uses Adam to name the animals. God uses prophets to communicate to his people. God calls Noah to build the ark. Moses to lead his people out of Egypt. And the list goes on and on. Old Testament, New Testament, now. You know, and Bruxy Cavey has uh, such a great quote that I'll paraphrase. Uh, But if God didn't work through relationships, the Bible would be far shorter. You know, it would say God saw that it was broken, so he rolled up his sleeves and fixed it. The end. You know, God always chooses relationship over efficiency. When the servants took the wine to the master of the banquet, the wine was so good, he assumed that the bridegroom had saved the best wine for last, which wouldn't have made much sense, right? And even the master of the banquet pointed out how you're supposed to serve the good wine first while people could still taste it before they have too much to drink. Let me close with this thought. Look at the directions Jesus gives to his servants. He says, fill and draw and take. Sometimes as believers, especially new believers, we don't know where to begin. You know, we we don't know how to start living the Jesus life. Let me recommend to you those same three instructions as the worship team comes back up to lead us first one is fill. Fill yourself with Jesus' love. Pray, study, worship, invest in relationship. Draw. Draw from those interactions, from the prayer and the study and the relationship and the worship, and reflect on them. And lastly, take. Take what you've been filled with. Take the reflection you've drawn upon. Take it to others. Take it to others by loving them, by sharing with them, by inviting them. You know, by living those same characteristics that Jesus has shown, even if their palates can't taste how good the wine is at first. Start that whole process right now as we continue to worship. And would you please come and join us in communion? I I think it's beautiful that today we get to talk about uh, that miracle account of water to wine. And then we see how Jesus carries it out, not only on the cross, but, uh, you know, in the first uh, communion, in the first and the last supper. Um, So we're going to celebrate communion today. Uh, So please stand and come to the table. Before we go, I just want to share one thing with you. Um, You know, the last instruction that I said take uh, could have some different forms. You know, how, how do we take this to others? And sometimes it all takes, all it takes is an expression from you you know sometimes all it takes is saying out loud in a tangible way that yes i love jesus yes i accept him as lord of my life you know it's an outward expression of an inward commitment and in reality and a great first way to do that is through baptism. So just like Ross mentioned, on the 15th, we're going to be having a baptism uh, services here at both nine fifteen and 11. But today there is a baptism service right after this service um, that I think was in the hospitality room, but now it's, it's back here backstage. And uh, if you're feeling that tug in your heart right now about baptism, I encourage you to take the chance. And, and join in that class today. And if you're just now feeling like you're ready to accept Jesus' grace and you want to start a relationship with him, would you come let me or one of the staff members or elders pray with you after we close here today? And I encourage you to fill and draw and take today without any boundaries of religion from right where you are and in a relationship with God and others and do it with joy. You know, Spurgeon has a, has a great quote that says, an individual who has no geniality about him had better be an undertaker and bury the dead, for he will never succeed in influencing the living. So do what you do when you share the joy of Christ, that you do it with joy yourself as well. And now, may the Lord bless and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. You are loved, you are desired. Revel in that and take it to others. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's Sermon Audio. If you are loving Quest's podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. For more information about Quest, who we are and what we do, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at GoToQuest.org. That's G-O-T-O-Quest.org.